Let's go to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, there are two predominant nativity passages in your Bible. They are Matthew chapter 2 and they are Luke chapter 2. They describe the birth of Jesus Christ. They each give us different details. This morning, we're going to read verses 1 through 12 and be focusing in on those characters that we know as the wise men. And uh, the title of the message today is, My Gift to Jesus. And so if you would, follow along as I begin reading in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. And when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel." Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search diligently for the young child, and when you have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Let's pray. Dear Lord, it is our great honor and privilege to come into your presence this morning knowing that you have spoken through your word and that we don't have to wonder what you have said. We simply have to discern it. We just have to hear it today. Father, I pray and ask that you would give us attentive minds this morning, that we might search your scriptures and see them speaking of you. Father, I pray and ask that you would instruct us today and that you would teach us, Lord, something from your word. God, help me to be your messenger today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You know, when we think about Christmas, we automatically think about gift giving. It it is associated with Christmas. It's a time of giving. I I would imagine, I didn't do the research, but I would imagine that there is more giving that goes on in the Christmas season than all of the year uh, put together because this is a tradition that is held around the world. People give gifts to their family, they give gifts to their friends, they give gifts to co-workers, they they even give gifts to their pets sometimes, right? Like Fido knows what this is all about. Uh, I mean, we just get into the gift-giving mode and we make the list and all the people that we need to give. Uh, In fact, we find that that more is given to charities during this time of year than any other time of year. Now, the cynical side of me says that might be because the end of year is coming and there can be some tax benefits benefits to that but if I'm being benef- uh, ben- if I'm being gracious then I would say you know it's just the Christmas spirit 
Uh, even old Ebenezer Scrooge, right, was overcome by the spirit of Christmas and it turned him into a generous giving man, according to Charles Dixon, Dickin, Dickens in A Christmas Carol. And so while that is a made-up story, it really is emblematic of how we view Christmas that, that even if people don't believe in the birth of Christ, they believe that the spirit of Christmas is a spirit of giving and that people are practicing that during this Christmas time. Uh, as a matter of fact, when we think about why that is, we understand that we celebrate by giving gifts because God gave us a gift. He gave us the greatest gift that could ever be given. He gave us the gift of Christ. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, Romans 6.23 says, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, 2 Corinthians 15.9 says, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable or indescribable gift. And so it is only right that we do give gifts, but if we are doing it in light of the gift that God has given to us. But without fail... People seem to run into a quandary during this time for that one person or persons as to what gift do I get them? What do I get to the person that has everything? Or what do I get to the person who doesn't want anything? I mean, how do I give something to them? Sometimes we receive a large gift from somebody else and we think, well, I could never match that. I don't know what I could give back to it. And while that is a perplexing problem that we face during this time, I'm afraid that sometimes we carry that same mentality over to God. I would say that we as Christians do a real good job at acknowledging that God gave us a gift. We, we, we understand that God, God didn't have to save us. He did not have to come to this earth. He gave us a gift and we celebrate that and we try to make a big deal about that and we sing songs about that and we preach sermons about that and we teach Sunday school lessons about that. I mean everything. We are, we are celebrating the gift that God gave to us. But I think where we fail sometimes is realizing that we have something that we can give to God. Just like we have some of those people that we say, well, what do I give to the person who has everything? We think, well, what could I give to God that he doesn't already have? I mean, everything that I have came from him. He created the whole world. I mean, he existed without other. He doesn't need water. He doesn't need air. He doesn't need food. He doesn't need lodging. I mean, he doesn't need clothes. What do I get God? What can I give him that he would actually appreciate? Well, I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. I believe that the Scripture is sufficient for all of our needs, all of our questions, and all of our instructions in life. And so I want to direct our attention this morning to the wise men who were the first gift givers to Jesus so that we can learn what we have to offer to God, what we can give to God, that we actually have some gifts that God would value and take pleasure in. And so if you're ready, follow along. Number one, they gave Jesus their attention. They gave Jesus their attention. It says in verses 1 and 2 that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east. You know, we give our attention to the things that are important to us. 
If something is important to you, nobody has to force you to pay attention to it, right? If it's important to us, we give our attention to that. We give it our focus. We'll invest some time in it. It's the things that aren't important to us that we have a hard time paying attention to. Well, obviously, these wise men were interested in the birth of Messiah. They come searching for him. They have studied the astronomy of the sky. They, uh, they are coming questioning. They have given their attention to them. But it does beg the question, I want to know their backstory. Who are these guys? Who are these wise men? And, and how did they know? Well, if you'd hold your place in Matthew and go back with me to the book of Daniel, I'd like to make a connection in Scripture for you because it is believed that these wise men were from Babylon, which is a city approximately 500 miles east of Jerusalem. This is based on the etymology of the word. The Greek word for wise men is magi. It's translated from the Hebrew word rab mag, which was used in reference to certain Babylonian officials in the book of Daniel. And so look at Daniel 1 1 to get our context. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And so historically, we understand that the Babylonian Empire rose to world power under a man named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is conquering throughout the region and his conquering escapades bring him all the way to Jerusalem. And in 586 B.C., Jerusalem fell to Babylon. And when they came and conquered Jerusalem, not only did they spoil them of values and riches and goods... But they also spoiled them of what they considered to be some of the best of the people. They took some of the brightest and most promising young men and took them back to Babylon to train them in the Babylonian ways and to use them uh, in the king's court and in some advisory roles. As we know... This chapter goes on to tell us that there were four Hebrews in particular, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that were taken probably as young teenagers, taken back to Babylon, and were immersed into that culture and used for that purpose. If you look at chapter 2, verse 13, uh, what we find in the first part of that chapter is that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream he calls together his sorcerers, his magicians, his fortune tellers, and none of them can tell what his dream is. And so he sends out a decree in Daniel chapter 2, verse 13. And the decree went forth that the, watch this, wise men should be slain. And they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. Look again at verse 14. Then Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, which was gone forth to slay, here it is, the wise men of Babylon. Look again at verse 18. That they would desire mercies of God of heaven concerning the secret that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And one last time for our purposes, verse 24. Therefore Daniel went in unto Arioch, whom the king had ordained to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus unto him, Destroy not the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show unto the king the interpretation. This wise men of Babylon is a blanket word, if you will, that encompasses 
all of these advisors in this spiritual or wisdom or philosophical realm. When we see some of them listed, some of them are listed as philosophers, some of them are listed as sorcerers, some of them are listed as magicians. They have studied some of the Eastern mystic arts. And and Nebuchadnezzar is trying to avail himself to every culture, every line of wisdom, every line of philosophy. But notice... Daniel and the three Hebrews are also in this category of wise men because they come bring wisdom from Israel or wisdom from the Hebrews. And so when we read about these wise men in Matthew chapter 2, you and I need to understand that God is giving us a big old road sign that says, ding, 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 this is how you know who these people are. Just like when you had to learn how to drive, Before they let you get in the car and drive around, see if you knew how to do all that stuff, you had to get in a book, and you had to study a book, and you had to go take a test about the book. And one of the things in the book was signs, right? What does the octagonal red sign mean? Well, we all know what that means, right? We don't all practice it, but we all know what it means. Reminds me, Travis, you'll like this. Uh, uh, Reminds me that a man who uh, was used to going through an intersection, never had traffic there. He came up on the stop sign, and, and he looked down. He could see the other direction, and he slowed down, and he rolled on through. Well, he didn't know it, but a police officer was waiting, and he pulled him over. And the man tried to justify what he did, and he, the officer said, you didn't come to a stop. He said, but I slowed down. And the officer took out his billy club, and he started hitting him in the head, and he said, do you want me to stop or just slow down? The point I'm trying to make is that we recognize the signs, right? Any state, anywhere, we can recognize what those signs mean. God does that with some terms in the Bible. The day of the Lord is a term that always means the same thing every time. It's about that judgment day of God. And whether we read it in Zechariah or we read it in 1 Thessalonians, it's talking about the same thing. And so you and I come to realize, okay, these wise men are not these these mystical, mysterious people that we know nothing about. These are the wise men from the east, and none was wiser than Daniel. Think about that. Daniel was the head of his class. I don't know who was in charge of that thing before Daniel got there, but Daniel rose to the top. I mean, it started in chapter 2 when he was able to communicate a dream that nobody else could communicate. It went on as they began to do things that nobody else began to do, and they could give revelations and interpretations and signs and that sort of thing. And Daniel lives his entire life from a teenager probably into his 70s in Babylon, and he becomes the, the closest advisor to multiple kings. And while he is there, God gives him a revelation. And Daniel writes that down, and it becomes the book of Daniel. So you know what I know about the library in Babylon? It had the book of Daniel in there. Not only did it have the book of Daniel, but when the Babylonians went into Jerusalem and they seized Jerusalem, they took the elements out of the temple and they would have taken copies of the Old Testament with them and they brought them into Babylon. And that would have been part of the task of the wise men from that generation on to study this book or books of wisdom. And in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 9, we have some of the greatest prophecies about the coming of Messiah. As a matter of fact, the one thing that triggered the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin to execute Jesus is that when they asked him if he was the Son of God, he quotes Daniel chapter 7, and that is enough for them to say, blasphemy, because they know exactly what he's talking about. 
But what I want to show you is in Daniel chapter 9 that God actually gave some dates that they could look for pertaining to the coming of the Jewish Messiah. Daniel chapter 9 verse 24 says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Thy people are the Jews, the holy city is Jerusalem. To finish the transgression and to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for the iniquity and to bring into everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The secret shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. Now we don't have time to get into all the meanings of those 70 weeks, but what we do know is that this was a specific period of time that began counting from the command to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And so these wise men who have studied this, who have respected Daniel, who know that he's the wisest of the wise men, have cataloged this, and they know that this is representing some sort of time factor. And they have been counting it down, and they have given attention to it. And so I would say this, they gave their attention to Scripture. You see, what's hard to reconcile is the fact that these wise men who come from a half a world away are the only ones coming to welcome the Messiah when all of Israel is ignorant to his coming. Did not Israel have the book of Daniel? Yes, they did. It was given to Daniel in Babylon, but copies were made, and they were sent around, and they were circulated among the people. It is part of the canon of Scripture by the time it closes in that intertestamental period of time. Not only do they have the prophecy of Daniel, we know that they've got all the other prophecies. In fact, when Herod says, where is the Messiah going to be born? The, the, the scribes go and search, and they find in Micah 5.2 that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. God told them in Scripture when the Messiah is coming, how he's going to come. He's going to be born of a virgin, where he is going to be born. He tells them all of these details in Scripture, but only those who give their attention to it are the ones who see it. And so when I say that we can give our attention to Jesus, I say the best way we can give our attention to Jesus is by giving attention to Scripture. Listen to the words of Jesus he said in John 5.39, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. John 5.46, For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Luke 24.27, Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. The Bible talks about Jesus. What can I give Jesus? What can I give to the one who gave me everything? I can give him my attention. I can carve out some time in my day and in my week to just get to know him, to focus on him. The greatest commodity in our day and time is focus, is it not? We are perpetually distracted 
by a number of things. And if you want to give something to Jesus this Christmas, you can give him your attention. Not only did they give him their attention, but number two, they gave Jesus their worship. They gave Jesus their worship. Notice back in our text, Matthew chapter 2, at the end of verse 2, it says, saying, Where is he that's born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Drop down to verse 9. And when they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Worship is reserved for God only. Worship is reserved for God only. God is very clear about this in Scripture. As a matter of fact, it is the content of the first two commandments. Let me read those to you this morning. As we think about the value of worship, worship is for God alone. In Exodus 20, when God is giving a, a statutory law, a, a, a short list of governance, He begins by saying this, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Let me tell you something. God is serious about worship. He takes it very seriously. And God has reserved worship for himself. In fact, Jesus reiterated this command in Matthew chapter 4 when he is facing the great temptation by Satan. And, and Satan tempts him, but just give me a little bit of worship. Bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus comes back strongly with scripture and he says unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. Were these wise men wrong? For worshiping Jesus? I mean, if worship is only for God and these wise men are coming down and bowing down and worshiping a baby in a cradle, are they wrong for that? Well, let's, let's, let's go to Scripture. You see, it is wrong to worship anybody else besides God. In fact, anybody who follows God has to decline worship if it's offered to them, for them to be right with God. If somebody tries to come up and worship you, and you accept that, you are sinning against God. Think about this. Peter, when he came into the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius falls down to worship him, and Peter says, Don't do it. I'm a man like you are. Worship the Lord. 
when Paul and Barnabas come to Thessalonica and they perform a miracle and the people rally around them and they think that the gods, Jupiter and Mercury, have come down to them and they're about to make sacrifice and worship them. They, they say, don't do it. We are men. We are not gods. It is not right to worship us. And they stop it. In fact, even the angel who is guiding John through the final revelation shows John some of the things that are so overwhelming that John falls down to worship him. And the angel says, don't do it. Worship God. So here's what I know. If Jesus is a man of God but is not God, he has to decline worship. But if Jesus is God... He is entitled to worship. I looked and I found that there were over 10 occasions in the Gospels where people bowed down and worshipped Jesus. And he never restrained them and he never rebuked them. He received their worship. What does that tell me? That tells me that Jesus is worthy of worship. It tells me that Jesus is God in the flesh. It tells me that the wise men were right in worshiping him. And and we explain this very simply. Matthew 1.23, Thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, thus being interpreted God with us. God became a man in the form of that babe. And so he is worthy of worship. Last week we saw in Hebrews 1, 6 and 8 where God said, Let all the angels of heaven worship Him. And then the Father says to the Son, Thy throne, O God, is forever a throne of righteousness. You see, we can give Christ our worship. He deserves our worship. But we must be careful not to give our worship to anyone or anything other than God. I think, again, this is where we in our American culture get tripped up because we don't have those statues and idols. We don't come from a, a, a background where we are tempted to worship in that way. And so most of the time, we think that that stuff really doesn't apply to us. But can I read you one verse that really hit me between the eyes about this? It is Colossians 3, 5, and it says this, Covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. You know what the great tragedy, one of the great tragedies of Christmas in America is? Covetousness. That it is a time of wanting and greed and desire. Man, I, I remember being programmed to do this from, from the time I was a little child. My kids, I don't know that I've ever experienced this, but back in my day before they had the Internet, before Al Gore invented the Internet, we had these things called catalogs, JCPenney and Sears, and the Christmas catalog was the best. I mean, it gave you a little enticing temptation on the cover. I mean, they crammed as many shiny, attractive toys on the cover of that thing. And then you'd start flipping through the page, and you'd skip over like the, the pajamas and the socks and the shoes and the pants because you wanted to get to the toy section. And man, you would just fill your heart with covetousness as a little innocent child thinking, I want that and I want that and I want that and I hope mom gets me that and I hope Santa brings me that and maybe grandma will get me that. And I'm just telling you guys, as innocent as that is, it does 
condition us to set our affection on things instead of God. And so you and I can be just as guilty. You can, I can be just as guilty as the one who bows down to an idol in the way that we treat Christmas with covetousness and greed. And so a great gift that you and I can give to the Lord Jesus is our worship. Just loving Him, valuing Him, showing Him how much we care for Him and love Him. And so we're getting some great gift-giving ideas from these wise men. No wonder they're called wise. They've got some good ideas. We can give Jesus our attention. We can give Him our worship. We also find that they gave Jesus their treasures. They gave Jesus their treasures. Look at verse 11 again. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. It's an interesting statement there. As you think about this, you have to consider not just the value of the treasures, what did that gold cost? How much was frankincense per pound? What did it cost to secure myrrh? You know, I have to remember, and this is where our little history lesson came in handy, that these gifts originated back in Babylon. So that means that when these guys are giving their treasures to Jesus, that at some point, some months back, they built or bought boxes strong boxes, trunks, and chests, and they filled them up with valuables. They secured beasts of burden that could make the journey, and they loaded them up, and they spent at least three months traveling at risk and at peril of highwaymen and robbers who would gladly take their lives to get the contents that were in the boxes all so that they could come and do this, set it down before a baby or a young toddler and open it up and present it to him. Their treasures were open to him. They gave him their treasures. So it, it begs the question, are our treasures open to the Lord? Or are our finances possessions and valuables shut off to him we're too good at compartmentalizing right well i give jesus my time on sunday mornings i give jesus my i don't sing like this anywhere else i only do it at church i i give jesus some time when i open my bible i'm giving jesus my time right now while i'm listening to you ramble on about this i mean I, i'm giving him all this stuff what does he need with my money what does he need with my possessions what does he need with my gifts And I would say, what did Jesus, the baby, need with gold and myrrh and frankincense? You see, it is not just the possession. It is the attitude of the possessor that is the greater gift. These men were willing to give something that was of value to them. And it communicates the fact that they valued Christ this is a clear indicator of the condition of your heart. Now, don't take offense at that. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. He said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. 
I'm not not saying that it's a one-to-one correspondence, but our giving is a strong indicator of our love for the Lord. Do you remember a guy that we call the rich young ruler that came to Jesus? Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, oh, it's simple. Go and sell everything that you have, give it all away to the poor, and then take up your cross and come follow me. And you know what the Bible says? He went away sad because he had a lot of stuff. He had great possessions. And what he says was it costs too much to follow Jesus. He's not worth that. I mean, you, you could have asked me to do a lot of things, and I would have done that, but I can't do this. I can't give it all. You know, if we're reluctant to give him the things that we value, then it shows that we don't value him as we should. And so, as I read that text of Scripture, I, I, I'm not presenting to you that you need to go home and, and, and empty out your bank account today and give it to the church. I, I'm not saying that you have to cash out all of your retirement to, to really give Jesus the gift. I think the key is in opening it to him. I think really the great gift that you and I can give of our treasures is saying, God, you've got the right on this. You're a signer on my account. You can call on me to give whenever, whatever, however you want. And my answer will always be yes. It will never be let me think about that. Let me do the math. It will always be yes, Lord, you have the right to everything that I own. You see, they gave their treasures to him. And then, fourthly, lastly, they gave Jesus their loyalty. They gave Jesus their loyalty. I love verse 12. It it, it says so much in one little statement. So let's just think about this for a moment. These wise men have, have no idea that Herod would not be happy to hear about the Messiah. In fact, they, they thought that going to the capital in Jerusalem was the logical place to go because this is the Jewish Messiah that has been prophesied about by the greatest prophets in Israel's history. And surely they are all anticipating this Messiah who is coming. And so when they arrive, they do the politically correct thing. They go through the right channels and they appear before Herod and say, We've seen his star in the east. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Well, they didn't know, but that was a trigger word for Herod because oh, Herod Herod was the king of the Jews. And Herod was very insecure. He had been appointed there by Rome through many means and and some back room uh, doings. And he was vicious at holding on to his power. And so when he says to those wise men, when you, yes, go worship him. And when you worship him, come back and tell me where he is so I can worship him too. They don't know that he's disingenuous. They don't know his heart. He's wearing a mask. And yet, after they go and worship Jesus, they get it revealed to them by God that that Herod's intentions are not good. And that if they go back and tell Herod, then they are jeopardizing that child. And instead, we find that they give Jesus their loyalty. They give Jesus their loyalty. 
They stay loyal to him. They didn't betray Jesus to King Herod. Now, if you're just doing the calculations, it would be more advantageous for them to have a political alliance with Herod than it would to be with this baby that is over here with a poor family. It would be more profitable for them to go and leverage this information. And extort out of Herod great riches and wealth for this information. More so than what this babe from a poor family could ever repay them. And yet, these men do something that is not protocol. They don't go back to the authority in the land as was requested. They slip out and go a different way. All so that they could keep their loyalty to Jesus I'm afraid that many Christians many Christians feel the tension and the temptation to choose present approval of our peers and of our world instead of the future approval of Christ that that baby had nothing to offer these men in the present but all what he has to offer them in the future. They were willing to remain loyal to him and perhaps suffer in the present for the reward in the future that would come from King Jesus. And you and I need to realize that even though we're living in this world, we are not of this world. And even though this world is putting pressure on us every single day to conform to their ways, we are living for one King Jesus. And while it may not appear that the benefits are rolling in right now, there is coming a day when he will be and exert himself as the King of Kings And the Lord of Lords. I've got a feeling. I've got a feeling that our loyalty to Jesus and to his word is going to be increasingly challenged in the days ahead. Let me tell you what I'm not saying. I'm not making a political statement. I'm not making a political statement. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is what we see going on in this cultural revolution that is being driven by the LGBTQ rights and it is coming in direct conflict with religious liberty. And if you want to do the work, you will find that there are court cases that have been going on now for some years and there are multiple ones of those where these two are colliding There is a conflict between the the sexual rights of preference and the religious rights to practice our faith. And guess what? Religious liberty is losing. And it's going to perhaps start to lose more and more and more as this force gets stronger and stronger. And in the days ahead, in your lifetime and in my lifetime, We're going to feel the tension get greater and greater. Am I going to remain to be loyal to my Lord Jesus Christ and to his word? Or am I going to be disloyal in order to get the approval of my peers? You see, the the narrative might change in its details, but the plot is always the same. The wise men were torn between two, loyalty to Herod or loyalty to Jesus. And you and I are going to be torn between loyalty to the secular world or loyalty to Jesus. 
How about we start now giving him our loyalty? We can give him our we can give him our attention, we can give him our worship, we can give him our treasures, we can give him our loyalty. I read sometime back that 500 seventh graders were polled about Christmas and giving. And 73% of those students responded that Christmas was about receiving gifts, not giving them. Now, when I first read that, I thought, that's tragic. Those seventh graders ought to know better than that. Then I became the dad of some seventh graders. You know what I realized? It all makes perfect sense to me. If, if I just think about where these kids are in life, they're still in adolescence. And so from the time they were very little, it has always been, what do you want? What do you want for Christmas? Make your Christmas list. Write your Christmas letter to Santa. Uh, tell Grandma what you want. And so uh, their entire life, it has all been about them getting those gifts. Add to that the fact that they're still in school, so they're not earning any income. So they don't have any money, basically, unless it's given to them. So they don't have the money to buy gifts. And if they had the money to buy gifts, they don't have a driver's license to go get those gifts. So it makes perfectly good sense to understand that nearly three-quarters of all seventh graders think that Christmas is about getting gifts, not giving gifts. But I am glad to report to you that I am the parent of two post-seventh graders. That is, they were seventh graders and they are not seventh graders anymore. And while it was touch and go for a while, and I wondered if they would ever think about anybody besides themselves, I'm happy to report that something called maturity actually begins to kick in. And when they start making some of their own money and they have the ability to drive, they actually start buying some gifts for the people that they love. You know, that's when it really got me because I realized that immaturity is what calls them to focus on receiving and maturity is what helps them transition into giving. And it makes me wonder if it's not because of spiritual immaturity that sometimes we place the emphasis on the gift that we receive from Jesus, as great as it is, and we forget that we ought to be giving something back to him. And so let's make a New Year's resolution. I know it's early. But how about we make this New Year's resolution that we're just going to draw near to God in 2021 we're going to grow in him. We're going to mature in him. And we're, we're going to transition from adolescence to adulthood in our Christian faith. And we're going to say, you know what? Yes, he received, I received a gift from him. I could never match it. But I've got something that's uniquely mine that I can give back to him. Would you bow with me? As we bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. I believe the Holy Spirit of God continues to do a work that happens long after the sermon is done, long after you leave this building. And in this moment of prayer, I just want to give you some time to latch on to some things. And I want to pray that they're not stolen away by distractions and by the wicked one. Father, I do thank you so much for your word. 
I thank you, Lord, that you do reward those who are diligent to search your scriptures. That just as those men from the East were rewarded by their study of the ancient manuscripts when many Jews in the land were not because they had neglected them, Lord, we too as believers today are rewarded when we dig into your word and we discover truth. But the fullness of that blessing comes not just in the discovery of it, but the obedience to it. No doubt those wise men would not have been as enriched by this if they had not acted upon it. And so, Father, I pray that today we would not just add to our knowledge base, that we would not just think that we're getting more mature simply because we know more facts about the Bible, But I pray that today, Lord, that knowledge would be translated into action and that we would desire to be gift givers to you this year and that we would take what is uniquely ours, our attention, our worship, our treasures, our loyalty, and that we would give that to you this day and every day forward. You are so worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.